0: CSP Podcast, episode forty six. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the CSP Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen. And welcome to the first episode of 2018. It's been four years now since I've done this, uh, since I've started this podcast, this little passion project of mine. So, for all of you uh, listeners who have been with me since the beginning, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Today, we're talking about auditory processing disorders with Donna Tretkin. She's an audiologist in private practice. Check out her website at auditoryconnection.com. I know, Donna, back from my days in graduate school. Um, I went to graduate school at Rush University here in Chicago. And Donna uh, is an audiologist, was an audiologist back then, of course. And I remember she was very involved in, in our hospital's newborn hearing screening program. And she's gone on to work as an audiologist in the educational realm for a number of years. And her interest has grown into working with kids who have central auditory processing disorders. So today we're gonna to be talking about how Donna became interested in auditory processing disorders. We're gonna be covering the difference between CAPD and APD. we we'll be talking about incidents, different models for treatments, and a lot about something called the Buffalo model. So we're gonna jump into the conversation from the point where Donna talks about how she became interested in CAPD.
1: Really, I have a broad clinical background um... You know, we actually first originally met at Rush University Medical Center, where I was working um, as an audiologist, and I uh, always had an interest in the pediatric population. And after I left the medical center, I took um, some jobs working with pediatric ENTs. Um, and then I found myself uh, working as an educational audiologist Um with a special education cooperative that contracted with several school districts across 10 Northern Illinois counties. And that is where my interest in auditory processing disorders um, peaked.
0: Mm. So you were kind of exposed to it as you, when you took that job. Exactly, yeah,
1: because honestly, it wasn't something that I had to deal much with prior to that time, so I knew just not too much about it myself, and I have come to learn that what I even knew about it was not really true <laughs> so
0: ah really. so wh- yeah. wh- what kind of assumptions did you have that were not true or what wh- where was your knowledge sort of incomplete at that point?
1: um well, I didn't really know, so I will tell you right off the bat that um in grad school and even since grad school in the different environments that I worked, Mm -hmm. when the topic came up, um, I was told by even pretty well-respected people and people um, who I trusted that told me, well, you can test for auditory processing disorders. There's really nothing you can do about it. So what's the point? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I never really gave it much thought because, true, why um, I'm not generally interested in just doing testing if there's nothing i can do to help somebody yeah um so uh that's not true and we'll talk about
0: that okay so you so you took the co-op job and you started to expand your knowledge of CAPD as you as you uh grew into this job what um what sources or where did you reach out to to broaden your knowledge Yeah,
1: so I started to do a lot of self-study because um, I was seeing a variety of cases. And as we'll talk about, too, that no two cases really look the same. Um, And I just happened one day to uh, get a flyer that came across my desk Um, for a two-day seminar that was taking place in, I think, one of the south suburbs, um, Chicago Heights or Palos Hills, or one of the co-ops there was hosting Dr. Jack Katz, and he was presenting on his Buffalo Model approach to auditory processing disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time, I didn't know anything about Jack Katz or that he was involved in auditory processing disorders at all, and I'm ashamed to say that (laughs) because he's really our pioneer, but that just goes to show that We just didn't really learn that much about it in grad school. And anyway, so I ended up uh, taking his two-day seminar. And that's where really the love relationship developed with auditory processing disorders because he was the first one who could explain it in a very simple way and also share with us the effective uh, treatment that is available Mm -hmm. and, and his results that he has gotten over the years.
0: So when you took that course, did your, let's, let's talk about assessment first. Did your assessment change overnight or did your. It did. Yeah. 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 So what were the biggest changes you you immediately sort of took in your own practice?
1: Uh, So I immediately adopted um, his Buffalo model. Okay. um, Which he has some tests that he has developed. The oldest one and the most well-known of course would be the um, standard spondaic word test, which was the. SSW for short, Mm -hmm. prior to that, the only test battery or the only test that we had in the clinics where I worked was the scan test. Mm -hmm. And our job really, for the most part, working for the schools was to do sort of a screener only for auditory processing and nothing really too Um, in-depth. But after taking his course, I brought his... Tests and his model back to the co-op and presented it to my colleagues and said, "I really think this is what we need to be doing."
0: Got it. So, okay, I know we're jumping around a little bit, but I want to. Okay, so I want to go and and talk about the co-op prior to this two-day thing. Um, What was the philosophy in terms of assessing and treatment of CAPD up until that point?
1: Well, you know, we we it was really up to the the building or the school district um, that was requesting the evaluation or.
0: So the, the so the individual member district, right? Okay.
1: So we didn't have a uh, really a formal protocol through the co-op in place prior mm-hmm. to me coming on board. Um, mostly, the philosophy was we can we'll we'll do some we'll do the scan screener and then refer back to the school, and from that point, the family had the option to, um, take that information that from the screening results that we did and get a private evaluation completed.
0: Oh, now would that be, I know I'm kind of, would that be paid for by the district or is that up to the family?
1: Um, well, that's (laughs) probably (laughs) under the controversies.
0: Yeah. it, Yeah. um,
1: It depended, but most of the time it would be, uh, up to the families to pay for that as schools felt like they sort of did their job in, um, In saying that this might be a possibility, but it doesn't fall under uh, an educational eligibility, for instance, because it's not one of the 13 specifically listed. Categories, um, yeah. Eligibilities under the IDEA. Um, So schools really weren't taking any responsibility for um, the testing or the treatment, unfortunately. And And this sort of gets
0: into the murkiness of the whole diagnosis and what people understand. uh, Exactly. Yeah. So... I think this would be a good idea to sort of segue into talking about what, um, well, let's back up. So you you worked for the co-op for how long now?
1: Uh, It was about eight years.
0: Eight years. Okay. What was the moment or how did you decide to go off into your own uh, private practice?
1: It wasn't until the very last year or two, I actually started my private practice while I was still working for the co-op. I opened it um, part-time working on weekends uh, because um, I just, as time went on and I was seeing more and more evaluations, because what I did was bring back um, the Buffalo model and the the diagnostic test battery to the co-op. And I really started a program of doing diagnostic testings tests through the schools. So I was getting many, many, many more referrals um, to do the testing and um, I sort of started something. So I also found myself in more and more IEP meetings where I was sitting on the school side of the table, essentially, because Mm -hmm. I worked for the co-op. But my test results had identified an auditory processing disorder and I had a way to actually provide therapy or treatment for the auditory processing disorder. But schools didn't necessarily wanna get on board with the treatment side of things. Um, I think namely because they just didn't understand what that looked like and what they were getting themselves into and maybe there's a little bit of a fear factor like are we opening up this big box um, and don't really know what that's all about. So I felt like I just, I didn't feel right Mm-hmm. morally ethically um well from a purely pi-
0: yeah if, if one were to look just purely financial at the situation you you would think and I, if i'm maybe i'm mistaken how co-ops work but they're already sort of paying into a system i'm not you're uh,
1: absolutely right
0: you know so they might as well get the benefits of uh, your services
1: That's what really surprised me. I was surprised that because I was actually willing uh, to modify my work schedule, even because I was really the only person, audiologist, who knew how to do the, who trained on the therapies and was able to provide these therapies. Um, So, of course, many school districts, one person. I was actually only working part time as well, so there's just uh, availability issue. But I had had offered to modify my work schedule. um, and come in early or stay late, see kids after school, go to the schools, have the kids come to me, whatever seemed to work. Yeah. Um, And I did have some takers and it worked out quite nicely, but most of the time they didn't really want to open up that can of worms because I did have, I mean, once you do that, because then the issue becomes transportation and modifying the school schedule and all this sort of thing for something that was not well understood. That's the other uh, yeah, thing. Yeah,
0: that's the heart of it. Just not well understood. You know, I, and I'm curious. What kind of uh, response did you get from the district speech pathologists? Were they on board? Did they did they understand what was going on?
1: You know, I had a mixed response as well. I would say because I feel like the school speech pathologists are already so overloaded with their caseloads. Oh yeah. <laughs> that. Um, it. I think there was a little bit of fear that if uh, somebody would ask them to take these auditory processing cases on or ask me to sort of collaborate with them and, and taking on more um, therapy, which I think was a little scary. I did have a handful of speech pathologists come to me and ask me, meet with me and ask me um, how to do the therapies, and, um, which is not a simple Answer, but I was able to offer them the materials and resources, and I did have a handful by the recordings and the manuals and um, try to attempt it on their own. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there was some interest, but kind of a mixed bag.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I I think at this point, it's probably a good point to talk, start talking about what is CAPD. I, I know there's probably different definitions, different criteria, but what is your best? Uh, response if someone point-blank asked you, what is CAPD? How how would you best describe it?
1: I usually say, short and simple, um, it's what we do with what we hear. Mm -hmm. So auditory processing, well, auditory processing is what we do with what we hear. So auditory processing disorder would be a deficit in how the brain makes sense of speech and sound.
0: Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about pure tone, Uh, We're not talking about the initial sound stimulus going up the different channels. And I forgot all the (laughs) from grad school audiology. Right. (laughs) But it's what we do once that sound is uh, initially.
1: That's the purest form of it. Yeah. Um, But I don't think we can negate the peripheral hearing system and its contribution to the scene. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's another sort of myth that you can't diagnose auditory processing disorder if there is a peripheral sensory hearing loss. Um, Or by nature of having a sensory hearing loss, you automatically cannot have auditory processing disorder.
0: Hmm, Never thought about that.
1: The reverse is actually true. Having a sensory hearing loss puts you at a greater risk, for obvious reasons, for having an auditory processing disorder um but we were sort of taught that auditory processing disorders are people who have normal hearing and just can't process the auditory information.
0: Yeah, that's what I always thought. True. Yeah. It
1: absolutely is true. But but why not why can't you have a hearing loss as well? Why can't you have two things going on? And I know we're going to talk about comorbidity. Yeah. But that's another way to sort of look at it.
0: Yeah, and I think to me I think what makes uh, CPD so tricky is that you know the brain isn't made up of these compartmentalized <laughs> systems yeah. and everything's sort of interconnected. And then how do you isolate one thing from another? You know, where does CAPD begin? And uh you know, attention deficit disorder, you know, what are the relationship between the two? How do they influence each other? How do language uh disorders, you know? So you can go on and on about this stuff, but um, right is, is there a distinction between when people use the term? I, th- I think I've seen on uh, Asha's website before. As a matter of fact, I did a quick search before I went in, and I can't find a page that I remember. At least I thought I remember to be up about what when people talk about a, a distinction between like CAPD or just APD auditory processing disorders in a more global sense. Um, do you know anything about that? I mean,
1: yeah. So the first time I ever heard that that people actually tried to make a distinction was sitting in an IEP meeting, for instance, uh, for example, when um, one of the school personnel was claiming that um, the student had been diagnosed with CAPD um, and that that was completely different because I use APD usually, and that was completely different than APD and that the CAPD was somehow the medical problem and auditory processing, um, APD was, was separate from that. So, so the history of it. So I was, I was shocked. That was the first time I had heard it, but the history of it, I, I, I knew as far as, um, where the C comes from or the people who choose to use C or not C. So, um, the older term is CAPD, Mm -hmm. um, to include central auditory processing to, um, draw attention to the fact that we're talking about the central nervous system and really not um, talking about the more conventional peripheral hearing system when we have a hearing loss. Mm -hmm. Um, And then somewhere along the line, I think people started to think, well, maybe then if we use central auditory processing disorder, we're sort of excluding the peripheral hearing system um, when, of course, they work together cooperatively in the whole auditory system. So you need both. So then, people dropped the C and just used APD, uh-huh. um, and then I and then you'll see it also written with C in parentheses.
0: Yeah, so that's what I saw today. As a matter of fact, on a on a document on Asha.
1: Yeah, and I think those are people yeah. who just can't really decide. Yeah. I, 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 I don't. Th- it doesn't really matter, but the but the point is, is that they're synonymous. There is no difference. Okay. We're talking about the same thing.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I hear a speech pathologist. I, I think a lot of us use the term. He has an auditory processing disorder, and uh, you know, nowadays when I hear that, but to me it means some type of language impairment, language disorder. But um, I think when I when I hear SLPs talk about um, APD, they mean a more language based. Uh, not in terms of central auditory. So I, that's why I think there's still some confusion with me. And I think hopefully time and education and research will help to clarify and sharpen these categories. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah. And that's good insight for me to kind of get an idea about um, what other people are thinking. Cause for me, you know, it's it's perfectly clear to me, <laughs> yeah. and, and what it is. But um, it's interesting to hear how other people perceive it or define it.
0: Yeah. So so if you were to go to most seminars on the topic of, uh, CA, if you want to call it CAPD right now, would most would most audiologists, educational audi- audiologists, just refer to it as APD at this point? Are most people dropping the C?
1: I think so. I think that's the trend. Okay. I think it's the the old school um, are still kind of referring it to CAPD or CAPD.
0: Right, right, so what is what exactly is the incidence? Do we have any numbers out there?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's numbers um, and they vary and um I've seen numbers as low as two to three percent, and there was a study that looked at different ways to different diagnostic criteria and based on nine different ways to actually diagnose auditory processing disorder. The the numbers varied between like 7% and 96% were diagnosed with auditory processing disorder. So um, I can tell, I can speak intelligently about the number that Jack Katz quotes because he was my mentor and, and the one um, who trained me. And he will say with great confidence, that the number is about 20% of the school-aged population. 20%? Which is, is, I can tell you, you think that's much higher than what you've heard, right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, You know, the other thing, well, the other thing I was thinking is that depending, uh, okay, let me back up. How many major schools of assessment and treatment are there for auditory processing disorder?
1: how many different models do you mean how
0: many different models are there like what are most you know are there mostly two or three models i I forgot
1: yeah yeah i mean there's a buffalo model there's the bellis fairy model are the two um
0: that was the other one we talked about yeah
1: yes that i know about but then everybody has their own sort of way you know their own sort of uh creative way of approaching it i would say but yeah say that those so
0: my what i was getting was um might there be different incidents based on the model that you're using? You might one might have a different. I mean, I I don't know how much overlap there is in terms of uh, assessment protocols and the sensitivity with which you're both identifying two different schools might be identifying uh, the presence of it at a certain threshold.
1: Well, that's it, and and that's true. So that's one thing. Are you using uh, two standard deviations from the mean? Are you using one standard deviation from the mean? Mm-hmm. Are you using failing one test? Two tests, three tests, how many different? Yeah, that's very true. And then the other issue comes um, that comes into play is how exactly are we defining an auditory processing disorder? Like what would characterize auditory processing disorder? Um, like you said, speech pathologists kind of lump it in with like a language disorder. So if they fail their language testing and an auditory type test, mm-hmm. is that what you're going to call your two tests? We don't have a standard definition. Yeah. So I think that's where it gets kind of mucky, like you said.
0: The and then you were just talking about yeah, you I'm know, just going back to the comorbidity. Um well let me sort of back up here. So if we look at all the kids, if if twenty percent what percentage of those have comorbid ADHD, uh developmental developmental language disorder, uh what have you, you know, how many pure auditory processing disorders are there versus something with something else.
1: Right. So again, you're looking at an accurate diagnosis of those something else's, right? So Mm -hmm. auditory attention, attention deficit disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, same problem happens, right? So, or autism, for instance, Um, those are two other learning and neurological disorders that are a little wishy-washy too, right? There's no blood test for any of those. Those are also based on sort of questionnaires and profiles and um, other psycho psychological tests, yeah. uh, behavioral tests that can. There's in, inherent problems with all those tests. Same same with any kind of behavioral test. So yes, um, if you're looking, I guess if you wanted to define auditory processing disorder as something there is a true, um, pure and simple neurological deficit, maybe an auditory processing disorder related to a tumor or a stroke mm-hmm. or something like that, then um, your numbers are going to be very small. But when you're talking about sort of disorder, auditory processing disorder related to um, neural maturational developmental delays... Related to things such as um traumatic birth or otitis media um then then that's going to make your numbers go higher yeah um
0: yeah, I also wonder uh what it, it would be interesting to to know someone who say at the age of eight uh, identified as having an a p d having no treatment, what that would look like you know in their twenties or thirties. Uh, is there any type of spontaneous you know with continued brain growth and maturation and pruning? would there be any you know type of change or would someone likely continue to struggle in adulthood at the same degree?
1: Well, we definitely yeah. consider auditory processing as a um, lifelong deficit, mm-hmm. and there's really no cure for auditory processing disorder. so we do think that the struggle is always there, but what we're hoping to do is sort of lighten that struggle. And you're right, with the brain is naturally continuing to develop. So with that neuromaturation, you're hoping that things do improve and by learning strategies and problem-solving skills, learning to compensate for the disorder, you're hoping that thing that the educational difficulties for instance and the communication dis- difficulties and the memory difficulties that might be associated with auditory processing disorder improve. Mm-hmm. That's true. But the, the degree of the deficit is still there yeah. so that, you know, we see kids. So I can tell you, I'm starting to keep some data on this because I do see a lot of kids who are, I mean, I, I, I'm impressed to say that I see um, more than the expected number of kids who actually received a diagnosis at the age of five or six, mm-hmm. but then never received treatment. And now they're eight or nine, and um, really struggling in school. So they're back for retests and trying to figure out what to do in school. And when we look and compare the test results from five, age five, to age eight, at age five, the child has scored either the same or better than at age eight. So without treatment, that delay is just going to
0: keep going. Yeah, it's going to rear its ugly head and you know expected unexpected ways that's right um so getting into you know we talked when we met that starbucks about uh the one thing i didn't know about capd or apd is that there's certainly like many topics in our field controversy so (laughs) i wanted to ask you if you can sum up uh what does the controversy look like what are what do people agree on what are people disagreeing uh uh, disagreeing about I i know i've read i know i think in the asha leader recently there's Someone wrote a a letter back, uh, there was a story about APDs and people questioning whether it's even a diagnostic uh, category. What's going on here?
1: Right. So um, I think one of the biggest issues is, is this, is APD a legitimate disorder? Is it a standalone disorder or is it really just a symptom of some of these other sorts of disorders, um, that we've already talked about. Um, and because we don't have this universally agreed upon definition and there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of misunderstanding about it. Um, so that's one controversy. Is it, is it really a thing?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and there isn't there, again, it depends on who you ask, but if you look at sort of The resources that we have to answer that question, one would be the ICD-10 diagnostic code Mm -hmm. that we have for it. So that would, um, in my mind, make it a legitimate diagnostic entity. We also have the 9th District Circuit Court ruling in California that ruled in favor of um, classifying auditory processing disorders under the other health impairment for educational services under IDEA. It certainly falls under that sort of definition if you look at the wording of other health impairment, but also um, it's a perceptual disorder. So if you're looking at the IDEA IDEA eligibilities, um, specific learning disability, um, the language that's used for that Includes perceptual disorders that affect reading, writing, spelling, which is exactly what auditory processing is. It's mm-hmm. one of the sensory disorders. So either one of those two, and I and work, I yeah. know there's been some talk about that um, through the Asha leader too, and some commentary.
0: Yeah, about, uh, yeah.
1: Using it as learning disorder category.
0: But the, so you would say that the main uh, beef that people might have is whether or not it's a, it's a standalone. Uh, diagnostic category, which I you know w- when you think about it, I think is almost um, superfluous at this point. You know, I think that you know whether it's sort of a a feature of these other comorbid diagnoses or whether it's its own, you know you can truly tease apart them. It just as we learn more about the brain, I'm sure these things will be sorted out. But if you can test for it and it is having an impact, and if you know more importantly, if you know that the therapy can make a difference in the student's life, i mean why not?
1: Well, that's exactly my stand on it. So, call it whatever you want to call it. Don't call it auditory processing disorders then. Call it cucumbers, but <laughs> <laughs> describe the symptoms, yeah. right? And um and treat the symptoms, you know, and yeah. see and see if the child gets better. And um if they do, then boy, you got something.
0: So, what is and, and you know, using the Buffalo model, what, do, what does a typical um, test battery look like um, for you? Now, one of the things I want to uh, talk to the listeners about real quick is the one of the dogmatic <laughs> rules that I used to receive when I was full-time private practice about uh, even referring to an audiologist was that you never refer younger than the age of seven. And you told me, uh-uh, talk about that before we do anything else.
1: Right. So somehow we perpetuated that myth as well. And honestly, I was taught the same thing in school and I don't I don't know why. I really don't know the history behind that. And I was like, because, where did that myth
0: start from anyway? You know, right. who came up with that?
1: Right. Because when we look at the tests that we have available that have been um around forever, <laughs> definitely the SSW, um, and these other tests that are um definitely older than you and I are so why are we saying that? Because those tests have norms down to age five. So if we have norms down to age five, why would we not test? Um, but I've heard, so I ask people when I go and talk to groups, I ask them what they've heard and they tell me age seven or eight, you can only test um, at, at that age. Yeah. And I say, and I say, well, why, why is that? What have you heard? And they say, because the brain is still,
0: is, <laughs> that's the brain what is I've been mature told. at that yeah. age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, that's, exactly. Oh,
1: throw it. Yeah. So that's not true either. So then I'm not really sure. But really, my solid answer is five. And even if you have somebody younger than that, who's um, exhibiting the signs and symptoms, we have a couple screening tools for even age down to three and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can use those tools. And if not, we can still try to see if Describe the symptoms again, and see uh, start some interventions, and see if there's a response to the interventions that we're trying, the different therapies. And if there is, then that's pretty good support that we're on the right track, at least.
0: Yeah, and uh, I, I want to save this for later. But you you were telling me some pretty compelling uh, anecdotal. Also, uh, you actually had give me a paper on the effects of uh, treatment. We'll talk about that later. We're pretty impressive. And I think that if you're looking at like what objectives are important, I mean, really. Um, when you see when your student, uh, really excel academically, hopefully you can tie that back to your treatment, but, uh, when they're doing well academically and they're doing well in the post testing, I mean, you've got a winner there. Um, so I want to, I wanted to talk about, uh, the testing that you use. What is, what does an evaluation look like for you?
1: Okay. So I, I take my job very seriously. I, I know this is no surprise to you. Yeah, <laughs> you're very
0: passionate. That's so one thing I learned very quickly about you. <laughs>
1: um, so I spend actually a good amount of time taking a really, really comprehensive case history because um, finding out about Medical, hearing, educational history, developmental history, and spending time with the parents and caregivers is probably worth more than any of the other information, really, um, because those are the people who um, spend every day with, with the child. And when we do a test, I get a snapshot of that child at that moment um, with that test. And one of the things so, you
0: give, by the way, I saw in your, the folder you gave me you, uh, there's the Buffalo Bottle uh, questionnaire. Yes. And that's tabulated as sort of like a a score. And I just want to interrupt you really quick is is there um is there a certain cutoff or uh, a score that you get that has a positive correlation with the test results you get from uh, the objective measures?
1: So um, the questionnaire is divided sort of into different categories. Um, yeah. So yes, there's a high correlation between. What we find on the questionnaire and um, the number of yes responses for the, each category and how that relates to the diagnostic signs that we see on the test for those categories. And
0: just to um, give the listener the uh, flavor for some of those questions you're looking for, is as, as a child impulsive, uh, other learning disabilities, a history of dyslexia? Um, am I hitting those? I don't have it in front of me, but those come to mind. Am I right?
1: Yeah, and okay. some decoding type things, um, yeah, yeah. spellings, confusing speech sounds, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 once you collect the data, I mean, it becomes very, it, it just sort of starts to jump out at you when you see all these yeses in this category, and then you go to the the diagnostic tests and you see um, the deficit areas on the diagnostic tests and in more than on more than just one of the tests it's really even hard to argue because it really starts to make sense. It doesn't always work out so perfectly. I don't want to give anybody um, the false impression that it's super easy and, yeah, you know, there's really no question because it's, there's, it's not a yes, no diagnosis by any means.
0: Oh, sure. This is just a complicated picture of that uh, parent interview, other providers, teachers, and then looking at the objective data. It's, it's, you know, it's a clinical process. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, you're talking about the different tests?
1: Yeah. So, the Buffalo model um, employs really three basic tests that can be completed in about an hour. So, if you, this is another myth. So, if you've heard that, you know, um, you need the child to sit for about two, two and a half hours or more worth of testing. Yeah. That's what um, I heard. <laughs> and that would, that would, um, you know, and if they can't do that, then there's not even, you know, then they won't be able to get diagnosed or even. We shouldn't even um, explore that opp- that opportunity. But that's that's really not true. Um, so I usually get everything done in an hour. Um, I do take my case history on a separate day though, because I spend about an hour just taking that information. But so the Buffalo model tests are. Um, The the SSW, the standard spondaic word test, and that's a dichotic listening test. Mm
2: -hmm. So the child
1: is listening to four words.
2: mm -hmm.
1: Two of the words overlap. The phonemic synthesis test,
2: Mm -hmm. which
1: is a sound blending test. So the child is given a list of simple words presented sound by sound. And the task is to blend the sounds and produce the real word. Mm -hmm. And then speech and noise testing. And that looks at each ear individually. A list of words presented in quiet and a list of words presented in noise. And then um, we make a comparison between the results in quiet and the results in noise for each ear. If you have to choose one because you only have time for one or you're not sure about the others, um, really a dichotic listening test is the one you want to choose.
0: Now, why is that?
1: It's really the most sensitive measure we have. It's Gives us information about how sound, how um, speech and sound is traveling and being received by both the right and left auditory reception centers in the brain, and then how cross communication is taking place across the midline.
0: You know, I I was mentioning to you at um, at the Starbucks that I had uh, for years suspected that I had myself some type of uh, auditory processing disorder, chiefly because I do horribly. Uh, in restaurants and you know bars any loud space reverberating noise Um, and so I myself got tested and so for me I've always thought to myself at least for myself that the speech and noise was the biggest but of course I passed everything so who knows
1: yeah yeah so but that's the thing so sometimes these tests don't tell the whole story so um so my take on it is that doesn't mean that some of these therapies wouldn't still be beneficial because even on these more complex tests, kids who've had, remember too, that these tests were normed long before early intervention, Yeah. long before these kids were getting all these other therapies. So the kids we see now are much more sophisticated learners. Mm-hmm. So when they take these tests and they score normally, they could be sort of beating the test. Mm. and we have to consider that um
0: so do you have an idea as to how many false negatives might be out there i mean
1: i don't have a number for that yeah um
0: i'm just wondering how often that might happen
1: we have to think about the person administering the test as well right so you need to think about the clinical expertise yeah um and so some of these tests are designed to be really screening tests. Um, some are designed to be diagnostic tests, but even if it's a diagnostic test, and even if you're an audiologist and it's within your scope of practice to be doing the diagnostic test and coming up with a diagnosis, um, if it's not something that you are doing you know, confidently or a lot of, and you don't see as many cases, then it's going to just to take you know, the raw score and, and kind of come up with a number um, and kind of make it a yes-no diagnosis um, mm-hmm. is probably not the right thing. You're you're probably going to get it wrong. Yeah. Your job is really to get it right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, given if the incidence overall of APDs is as is, is high as uh, you mentioned, what would your advice be to the average SLP working in a school as to when to refer, when to not refer, you know, is there a set of questions we should be asking ourselves um, with every kid? So if I have a caseload of 50 kids and let's say, I don't know, 35 of those kids have, they have a developmental language disorder. Let's just use it as one diagnostic category. Um, no other uh, comorbid or uh, other any other issues. They just sort of uh, just sort of been given that diagnostic label. Maybe some people are still calling it SLI. I don't know. But uh <laughs> For the for the typical kid with a developmental language disorder, what are some questions that you would want an SLP asking themselves as to whether they want to refer beyond that to an education audiologist?
1: Um. Well, I would say. I mean, I would when I talk to my speech language pathologist friends who also do um, the therapy with our with these children, I am told that the differential screening test for. Processing by Richard and Ferry is a very good way to approach um, potential auditory processing disorder kids who are on the uh, speech caseload. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is one recommendation I would say, and I'm stealing that from my friends. I don't know anything about the test myself. Of course, I wouldn't have a, a need to use it, but it does have a dichotic listening task and other auditory-specific tasks that um, would screen for that. Really, the Buffalo Model Questionnaire is another one to to really look at the behaviors that Mm -hmm. might be associated with the language issues. It's certainly possible to have auditory processing disorder and a language disorder. They can coexist quite fine, Mm -hmm. but Does't meet but there are plenty of children who um, who have auditory processing disorders that are not exhibiting language disorders or in adults as well mm-hmm. um, The other thing to think about is doing you know typically you would maybe suspect some sort of hearing because auditory processing disorder might present I mean this is what I asked kind of somebody who might not be familiar with all the different um, characteristics. I'll say, does does the child look like somebody who is hearing impaired, who has hearing loss, um, behave and have some of those behaviors or characteristics, but we know the hearing is normal. Mm-hmm. So any of those types of behaviors that might stand out. So a lot of what's and has, um asking for repetitions. um
2: mm-hmm.
1: Those sorts of things are going to kind of be the red flags for for the auditory component. Um,
0: That was always the first. um, That's always the first sort of question that comes to my mind. Uh, You know, what stands out in my head about APD is like in in terms of a screening question: is do they do they say a lot? Do they seem to not be able to follow directions? Do they need clear directions spoken to them a number of times?
1: Right. And then, of and, course, and, the
0: speech and noise, which was always a big thing with me.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is, is that I would say, is your child in ther- in speech language therapy making the expected progress? And if you have a child who's sort of stuck in the language therapy, I would say that would be another uh, identifying factor to look into um, auditory processing disorder. Um, because what's could be happening is that we're trying to teach these higher level cognitive skills with language, but the foundation isn't there. Is there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
0: We didn't I don't think we talked about this um when we met, but is there you know, you mentioned some speech pathologists sort of taking um the treatment into their own hands. I I, I don't know if there is there an ethical um, boundary <laughs> between uh, audiologists. I mean, I know audiologists are uh, sort of charged with the diagnostic uh, aspect, but as far as the, the therapy goes, is it something that a speech pathologist can do under the direction or with the participation of an audiologist?
1: Absolutely. In fact, if you look at the way ASHA defines uh, the scope of practice, it actually looks like speech-language pathologists are more well-suited or, or um, have more permissions, so to speak, to do the treatment and to work with auditory processing than even audiologists. And to our, our own fault, audiology, while we started out as a rehabilitation therapy field, we've sort of quickly moved away from that to diagnostics only. And now, and once we were able now to dispense hearing aids and we're doing a little bit more um, And cochlear implants, we're getting a little bit more back into the oral rehabilitation scene Mm -hmm. and doing therapy. But really we weren't trained, you know, at least not when I was in school. I don't know what it looks like now, but I still feel like it's not, um, there's not a lot of focus on the therapy. Um, but we're not, we were not trained as therapists We're speech language pathologists are, and there's definitely a science to it, but it's really an art.
0: Yeah. I, I say that a lot. Um, there's, it's definitely an art, as much as we want to, to integrate the science. But, you know, the other, the other way of looking at it, is simply, this is also, I think, because uh, APD has a long way to go in terms of awareness and uh, and understanding. You know, that you can take uh, as densely populated as a city of Chicago, and you know, how many audi- how many audiologists are out there, or even speech pathologists who specialize or really have advanced training and knowledge in APD and uh at least from where I'm sitting, it's not a lot, it's so that. if that's the way in Chicago, you know what is it like in you know new york in uh san francisco los angeles dallas uh it's it still has a long way to go, I would gather
1: it definitely does it definitely yeah. does,
0: so tell me about. The uh, someone's going to scream at me if I don't bring this question up. The evidence base, oh. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, we're all into evidence based practice. You know, some are screaming from the rooftops, Where's the evidence? So, what right. is the current state of evidence for the we'll, we'll forget about the putting aside controversy right now about diagnostic labels? And you know, what is it? What is the evidence as far as uh, treatment for APD right now?
1: Well. I'm guessing you've heard there is no evidence because that's the other sort of myth that we've, (laughs) right? So there is no evidence. um, And that's because we don't have um, a lot of the randomized, double-blind control studies available that people really like to see. Because those are hard studies to do or longitudinal studies. Um, Those are hard studies to do. But if you look... At especially the neuroscience journals, um, there are volumes and volumes of research related to um, auditory t- training therapies and how the brain. So now we know, of course, the ra- so the rationale for therapy. Let me back up. So the rationale for therapy comes from the fact that we now know that the brain is plastic, right? Mm-hmm. We, we know the brain can change over time with stimulation and training. And how do we know that? We see, we see that with our patients who who make progress after a stroke. Um, We know that from even our elderly patients, even despite age-related changes that are happening in the brain, they can improve their cognitive skills. It's harder for them to maintain them, but they can improve them. Um, And we see it certainly with our early intervention kids who are able to catch up with their typical peers by getting early intervention. So we know that the brain can be trained and that's what exactly what auditory processing therapy is. It's brain training using mm-hmm. auditory modalities. So when I want to really feel good about what I do and um, that there's evidence, I certainly look to the information that the Buffalo model has and Jack Katz's own research and um, results using his therapies. And I know I gave you that one article. Yeah. Um I read the other That day. was recently yeah. published in... Uh, the Journal of Educational and Pediatric Rehabilitative um, Audiology.
0: I'll link to that. Great. Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: and that's really exciting information there about how the Buffalo model, ther- model therapy specifically showed results. Uh, but even you know, if you look at so Nina Krauss, right here in Chicago at Northwestern in her lab, she's actually doing a lot of work on measuring. Electrophysiologically, the changes that are happening after different list, different types of listening therapies. Um, I often quote her research that she did with Chicago school age children with you know, using an FM device for a year, and she was able to measure improvements in their brainstem responses um, before and after using the uh, FM system.
0: I, you know, for my own program, I've. Um as a wish list, if I had a limited budget and whatever I can do, I I almost wish that I can do something of the same uh, with the kids I work with because we're also, you know, especially in the classrooms I work in there's a lot of uh, background noise and uh, you know, how, why wouldn't you, if you could, you know, that's the way I look at it.
1: Right. Um, But conversely, we want to be careful not to use it as a blanket a blanket recommendation for, because there's different types of auditory processing disorder, obviously. Yeah. So, so if we're trying to treat somebody who really their main problem is how the information is crossing over at the corpus callosum and how the two right, the right and left hemisphere are, are communicating, um, we wouldn't necessarily expect FM to really improve that, that situation functionally for them. Right. But certainly right. it's not going to hurt anything.
0: Right. Um, yeah. So, so, um, what are, what are the components of therapy? Like what does a typical session look like? You know, the one of one of the I guess myths that I held in my in my head was that like a lot of therapy, that uh APD therapy was sort of a never-ending thing and it's anything but there is an end.
1: There is an end, yeah. Um, so I can speak to the Buffalo model again, mm-hmm. of course, um and how that's sort of set up. So, Buffalo Model Therapies focus uh, are set up. So, I can say so we set them up in rounds of therapy. So, we um, round one uh, we train on phonemic uh, uh, do a phonemic training program, which is essentially training on all the phonemes of the English language in isolation. Um, and new sounds are introduced every session. Um, and then the hard sounds are contrasted once the solid sounds, um, when there's good progress made with the, um, with sounds that are not easily confused.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then phonemic synthesis training, which looks very much like the swimming phonemic, phonemic synthesis test, except we do 15 lessons of um, that that become, that increase gradually in the level of difficulty. Um, we work on noise training. So speech understanding and noise and noise tolerance. So um, that again, we gra- we start out with zero noise and we increase to uh, the levels of the noise gradually um, during the session. So each session you go from zero to um, equal amounts of noise mm-hmm. to speech. So a plus zero dB uh, signal to noise ratio. Um, and then short- term auditory memories training, which is really just rote memory uh, training using lists of digits and words to try to expand uh, the digit span or word span. Um, and we do that. so we we do each of those modules.
0: Now do uh, so all that- kids do I, I'm sorry, do all uh, students doing this? Do you sort of start do you, is, is there any individualization or customization based on the results of their of their assessment? Uh, or do they there, also to go through the same protocol regardless?
1: No, there is some customization. Um, like, for instance, if they're really already solid on decoding and it's and we're really um, just seeing that they need noise and auditory memory. Or even integration, which is a whole other thing. Integration, um, again, talking about how things are crossing at the uh, information is being communicated at the midline. Um, so that would look more like dichotic listening training. But that's it. Much more difficult. and most kids have some level of difficulty with with decoding. And um that's very easily remediated.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so if we can even strengthen that before we work on those harder skills, um, we find that the later treatments and even some of these higher order skills training and top down strategies, Will be much easier for the kids, so um, you don't always necessarily start you know at lesson one for instance on the right. phonemic synthesis um, so there's that, but for the most part, I feel like all the kids benefit from sort of this introductory round of therapy
0: got it now how often uh, what what is a what is a dose um therapy look like? What's the frequency here? Is it two times a week, three times a week?
1: Right. So you got to find the right balance that it's not too little and not too much, right? So you know this as a therapist yourself. So um, generally 60 minutes a week. So that could be two 30-minute sessions um, or one one one-hour session. And really it's important to try to get those first six or eight sessions in consecutively. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we start to see some good progress and then from that point it's acceptable there's no changes there's no difference if we um schedule them every other week versus every week so um we really try to do six consecutive one-hour sessions
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: we can continue that way or every other week of scheduling
0: do you often have to uh is it difficult for some of your students to go 60 minutes i mean do they do a lot of them have to break it up especially with the ones with uh, add adhd
1: I have not had a problem with that at all. And, really? Um, and I would say, and I think if you ask Jack Katz himself, because I I mean, I've observed him in therapy um, with, with some kids who um, had some pretty severe attention issues. Um, but really, we are moving through the modules and changing activities, you know, every 10 minutes and taking breaks in between. So I have not had a problem with that um so there's enough novelty kids.
0: built into it yeah that's interesting yeah and,
1: yeah and you know i have the kids sit on an exercise ball or you know fidget if they need to um and there's different ways some of us have you know do a beanbag toss if they if they need to to move mm-hmm. um but for the most part it goes by very fast
0: nice nice so i wanted to ask you and i'll uh, actually before i move on how many weeks in total are, are, are the, is a typical kid in therapy for? I think I wrote was it 15 you wrote?
1: 15 weeks, yeah. So most kids will discharge after 15 weeks of therapy. So we usually do 15 weeks and then retest. And if at retest, we still see some things lingering or sometimes what happens is that now that we've sort of... Im- Uh, remediate, not sort of, but but now that we've remediated the more basic difficult uh, skills, the difficulties that they were having, um, we start to see some other things kind of um, come to the surface, like Uh for instance, integration. Um, Because the way the tests are scored, if you have a lot of errors, uh, there's some internal dynamics that happen within the scoring, um, on the test. So you don't, everything isn't always crystal clear, but once you start to fix certain areas, you'll see other areas kind of come to the surface. Um, and then we would take a two to three month break from therapy because, um, we sort of feel that's a good resting period for the brain to sort of simmer Mm -hmm. with these new skills and then, um, start round two. And then round two is typically shorter than round one, maybe another eight, or 10 sessions okay. um, to work on either continuing to work on the skills that still need improvement or these new skills, maybe doing some dichotic listening, training, continuing short-term short-term memory is a tough one. So that's usually one that's still lingering
0: because mm-hmm.
1: that's pretty intensive.
0: So, okay. So it'd be the 15 initial and then another, um, well, sort of flexible. Eight or 10. Eight or 10. Yeah. So obviously you're, these are the objective measures... Uh, Post treatment showing improvement. And then, if you were to take the same kids one year, two years out, they would retain those, uh, that objective data, those skills, correct? Yeah. Yep. So that's, that's exactly what, what we see. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just anecdotally, you've seen um, with the kids you've worked with, you've seen both the objective data improving as well as performance in school, correct? That's right. Yeah. That's why I find it. That's where it's like, after I talk, I'm like, I need to learn more about this stuff. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, you really start to see, um, spelling, reading, um, even standardized tests. Now, again, not everyone's a good test taker on those standardized tests, but, um, it, and sometimes it's completely unexpected results. Like things that are, I could, they're beyond me. I mean, some of this stuff is, is much bigger than I am for sure.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um but it's just really rewarding when, especially when the kids notice the improvement themselves, um, they they really tune into the fact that you know they're they're hearing they call it their hearing, but yeah. for lack of a better way of explaining it, um, is better or easier. We sort of lifted that weight off of them.
0: Yeah. Now, now here's a question because you know they're they're experiencing these um, remarkable gains. And when academics are improving, would you, you know, because I asked you earlier about someone who maybe wasn't treated and would they still register as having an APD in their 20s and 30s? So, and I know this is a, a much bigger question, but would you expect someone you're treating at the age of eight or nine to you know, say they're seen by a completely different audiologist, but maybe using the same uh, Buffalo model at the age of 15, would you expect that the, the effects still hold? And then for the rest of the, their lives, they actually wouldn't meet the threshold for an APD anymore. Is that too much to expect?
1: Okay, I lost you somewhere. So this is somebody who received treatment?
0: Uh, let's say, so someone who tre- received treatment at the age of maybe eight or nine. Right. Um, and then by all post uh Testing objective data, they seem to improved in every area their academics are improving uh at the age of fifteen, they're reassessed by a different audiologist just so um make sure there's no uh-huh. unintentional right. bias would right. they would do you think you know this is all yes. hypothetical would they meet the criteria as having an a p d at that point or would they just be oh. indistinguishable from everyone else
1: well so so that so that we would expect their test scores to, if they met age, if they were within age, um, match norms at age eight after having therapy, mm-hmm. right. Then at 15, I would expect them to be at age match norms.
0: Good, good. That, that's that, awesome. But
1: but that doesn't mean that they're, that's the diagnostic test, right? Yeah. So they're able to, to get to pass the test, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean we've cured the auditory processing
0: We we couldn't have a uh, conversation about APDs without talking about fast forward.
2: Oh yeah,
0: aerobics, hair builder, um, interactive metronome. Let's put that one yes. in there too. Yes. <laughs> so I know you know if you want to, we, I can do an entire episode on fast forward and the controversy on that. Right. That would be a good topic. But you know, so what are your what are your thoughts on all these programs?
1: Um, I my thoughts So these are all commercially available computer-based computer, bra- computer based training programs that claim to work on treating auditory processing disorders, but not all of them uh, necessarily are exclusive to auditory processing disorders, right? So right. especially interactive metronome, for instance.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I will say that I have to sort of clump them all together because I think they're different in, in to be honest, here builder might be the only one I've actually had my hands on.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I haven't had a need to have these others in my toolbox, but there's pros and cons, and I think they're good. Like I think that if I think there's some value to all of the ones that you mentioned, um, I know the literature again could be controversial because I think it really again, if you're using aerobics or fast forward to treat a decoding issue, for instance, I think you're probably on the right track. And I think you're probably going to see results from what I know about those programs. However, those programs might even be a step ahead of somebody who has a pretty severe decoding issue. So if you're starting out at sort of a higher level with those programs um, than the kid is actually capable of doing, then you might not see the results that you want to see from it. Um, And if you're trying to treat, you know, a noise tolerance problem or um, memory or integration, um, that's probably not the right choice for you. So I think there's good things and bad things. I also think that, like you said, therapy is an art. So if you're going to put the child in front of a computer program and kind of ask him or her to work at his own pace. Um, these are challenging programs. So
0: yeah. um, you have to know what you're somebody. using, you know, why yeah. you you have to really you know, be judicious to say, Oh, he has an APD. Just put him on aerobics. You have to know right. wh- what you're using and why you are using it. Um, right. In right. some some states, I guess it's sort of like feature matching. Exactly. Uh, what is it? What is the, where's the breakdown and what is it about aerobics that might be suitable for this kid versus hair builder? Now, do you, when you have, when a, when a kid's in therapy with you, do you have parents doing any type of, uh, carry over exercises at home with them. Is there anything that kids need to do between sessions?
1: No, there's nothing that they need to do. I would say no. Um, I I wouldn't mind if they did a little bit at home, um, yeah. but I have a hard time getting um, compliance on that. And I understand. I mean, it's just, It's hard to do. Oh,
0: we all do. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But
1: there's not. So it doesn't seem to affect my results by not having them do anything. Um, Okay.
0: Yeah. Now, I've also seen um, on just a small number of kids who I have referred out for uh, APD testing, uh, a standard sort of recommendation sheet about um, games, activities that parents can do at home to help support auditory processing. Do you include any type type of lists uh, with some of your uh, clients? I mean, you know, aside from the fact that homework's not given, but do you recommend games or other activities that parents can do to help uh, enrich their kids' listening skills?
1: For sure. So that's what I like that use the magic word enrichment. So if you can enrich the environment. So yes, I do have a list of games. Actually, my kids, um, usually like to hear that video games is actually a good, (laughs) um, is actually a a fair recommendation to make for kids with auditory processing disorders because you have the visual motor auditory integration going on. Um, so, uh, I really like Wii for instance but Wii is sort of old school now so it's hard. <laughs> I have parents that I don't even know how to remember how to set that up anymore but um
0: yeah, my son still plays it. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: That's good. So um so yeah so so different types of board games and the Simon game um uh the uh Bopit game um mm-hmm. some of these other handheld more uh vintage <laughs> handheld devices. Um, definitely. And I, and I try to not recommend actually the apps too much just because I feel like, um, there's that added benefit when you have the actual game piece and the tactile, um, sensory feedback that you get. Um, and it just promotes, I think, uh, group communication skills when you've got a group sitting around working on a game together.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Good point. Okay. I think that's a good place to stop. Um, do you think we covered everything?
1: I think so. I know. Um... Oh, I
0: have one more question for you. Oh no. Actually, okay. So, when I, I, one thing I thought was cool about your practice is that I, I, I don't know. Do you do most of it uh, via telepractice?
1: I, 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 no, no. I do not do most of it, but I offer okay. it
0: um i know we talked about that and you were setting up uh the capability to do that and that you know i found it interesting that i said i think we were talking about this that that you can in fact do this with someone uh over you know over a skype session so for sure yeah so you know i think that's really cool and you're talking about it setting up the the ability for you to do it across state lines and establishing licensure so no that's really cool so that's that's not the majority of what you do right now but that's something you're getting into.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure Um, it's my favorite way because I really do like, you know, the one-on-one in person. Uh, But because I am so passionate about the need and and there's such a need to get get these therapies out there, um, I really think it's a very viable way to do it.
0: Awesome. So where can people find out more about you, what you do and all that good stuff? What's the best place? Um, I
1: have a website. The name of my practice is The Auditory Connection, Big Connections for Little Ears, and my website is Mm -hmm. www.auditoryconnection.com. I am also involved in a professional group called the International Guild of Auditory Processing Specialists, and we were formed under the mentorship of Jack Katz, so most of us um, use the Buffalo model, but also... um, the group as a group, we incorporate other models and therapies and tools. Um, and our website. So we call ourselves eye gaps for short and our website hasn't launched yet, but you can be looking for that so that you can see sort of a broader auditory processing disorders through a broader lens. Um,
0: is that group yeah. made up of only of audiologists or is that uh, SLPs? It's not. As well? SLPs,
1: it's just- Audiolo- teachers of the deaf and hard of hearing sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, so it's anybody who has any interest and nice. wants to be involved.
0: Very nice. Now, where is Jack Katz located?
1: Jack Katz is still o- still owns and operates his own private practice in Kansas City. Uh huh. And he recently told us that he has now cut down to working three and a half days a week. And um, you know, you talk about evidence based for therapy. This Dr. Katz is well beyond um, retirement years. Most of us would have retired long ago. Um, <laughs> but the fact that he's still working and doing these therapies and um, trying to find out the answers to these really tough questions about auditory processing—that's really all the proof I personally personally need to know that there's auditory processing is a real thing and it can be helped.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much. For being on the show today. I think this is really cool. All right. Thank you, Donna, so much for being on today's show. For you listeners, we have a couple of corrections. Well, two times in today's episode, Donna referred to the SSW test, which in actuality is called the standard staggered spondaic word test. She referred to it as the standard spondaic word test. But um, we're talking about the same thing SSW. The other thing has to do with the definition Donna gave for what is an auditory processing disorder, what you do with what you hear. That is a quote that should be attributed to Dr. Jack Katz. For all you listeners out there, don't forget to check out within your app or on the website conversationsandspeech.com, links to articles, tests, other things that we mentioned. I hope to have everything there. Sometimes I forget things. And if I did, feel free to email me. Questions, comments, and concerns at jeff at conversationsandspeech.com. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.